Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning, whether you're here in person or on Skype. I um, do want to just let everybody know, especially you people who are on Skype, that we are going to have a, a Lord's Supper at the end today. We've had that requested that we do that, and we're happy to do that. I know um, you didn't get noticed necessarily, um, but just keep in mind that um, it's the bread and the cup. So as long as you have bread and a cup of something, and we won't ask you what's in it, um, you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Remember, that it's, a, it's the spiritual reality that really counts anyway. It's... Uh, the elements are good for, for unity, but it's really the spiritual consideration, remembrance of the Lord's death. That is what it's really all about. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we have, have this new year upon us, that you have you have restored us. You have uh, helped us get through all the things we had to get through last year. Thank you, Father, that we have the confidence in you, that we know that you are working all things together for good. No matter what we have to face this year, we also thank you in advance for all the blessings that you will provide for us, that you have provided for us, especially spiritual blessings, Father. We ask this morning that you also would guide and direct our service today, that um, we would uh, have a sharing of the word of God and the sharing of the cup and the bread, and that we would uh, be able to concentrate, understand the message this morning and uh, to hear the hear your guidance and direction out of the words in the Bible today for our lives this week and every week. We also want to pray this morning, Father, for the saints. We do want to especially pray again this morning for Peter and Ruth. Um, we just pray that uh, that you continue to sustain them and that you bring them through and that you uh, grace them out in these uh, in these moments. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, uh, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. Um, and again, as, as I did in the prayer this morning, please keep Peter and Ruth Morrison in your prayers every day if you can. All righty, let's begin. The title of today's message is The Last Day of the Feast. The Last Day of the Feast. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, verse 31. Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 31. We, are, we have now finished our series on the Messianic prophecy. And so today we return to our main study in the Gospel of John. And we will pick up right where we left off. And I hope you'll see the connection. I'll try to point it out between the Messianic study we did and where we are right now in the Gospel of John. So let's read the passage this morning. John chapter 7, verse 31 to 39. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. 
and where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By this, he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. But this for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, we finished our series on messianic prophecy and we're here back in the Gospel of John. When we last were in the Gospel of John, Jesus was in the temple teaching. And that's where we see him now in our passage today. Um, he remember he had gone a few days later than his brothers. So that means that when he arrived, it was probably a day or two into the feast already. He goes into the temple to teach. And then we saw that there, that he, he said things that were, again, challenging. We saw that there were three different factions in the audience. And we'll, we'll just get into that a little bit more. They, they were disputing. Um, and the issue, this was people in Jerusalem, various people. And I remember that people came from outside of Palestine because this was one of the free great feasts of the year that that was uh, where all the males were required to be in Jerusalem. And so um, and that's uh, including people from Galilee and uh, people from other other places. In fact, we saw that word dispersion. You can see it there in verse thirty five. Well, the dispersion, and we'll see a little more of this, that referred to the Jews that had been dispersed around around many, many countries um, during the captivity in Babylon, even before that, the Assyrians. And so they were coming from other countries to come in. That's the dispersion. So they were coming in from many different places. They had different understandings of who this Jesus was. I mean, the people from Galilee knew the most. People from Jerusalem had seen already conflict with the leadership there, they already were expressing their desire to kill him. And then um, and then you have the uh, the people who were believers um, or at least came to believe in Jesus also from Jerusalem. So that's the setting. We don't again. We saw that there was a dispute and it centered around whether or not Jesus was the promised Messiah. And that was our jumping off point into the series on Messianic prophecy. Because one of the things that was uh, was obvious about the people that were arguing about whether Jesus was the Messiah is that for the most part, they had lost touch with what the scriptures had to say about the Messiah. And so so we went in there to make sure we were clear on what the Bible has to say about the Messiah. And we saw that it's uh, from start to finish. The Bible is messianic. We saw how the, the covenant that, that God established with David was central to the whole idea of the Messiah. And so what, what was said about the Messiah in the scriptures was what they should have been focusing on, but they weren't. So um, they were arguing about that one faction, the leadership in Jerusalem, were rejecting him violently. A second faction was just confused. They were hearing this and that, and they weren't sure. And then we had the third faction, and that was the common people. And those common people, many of them believed in him. And why? Because his miracles convinced them that he was the Messiah. Now, I will say that the miracles are not the best way for somebody to come to believe in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, relying on miracles um, is, is a weakness because you should be able to rely on the truth about who he is, the message of the gospel. In any event, 
He gave miracles to them so that it would help them to believe, and some of them did. So now we return to Jesus in the temple with this crowd of people. Look at verse 31 again. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So whatever you want to say about the people at that time, the Jews, at least they did expect the Christ to come. So you can see that much. But so again, it was the miracles, the signs that convinced these people that he was the Messiah. But then we get to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, Jesus, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Why? Well, the Pharisees in particular were absolutely horrified at what they were hearing. What were they hearing? There was this mob of ignorant people, according to how they saw things, the commoners, and they were whispering that Jesus was the Messiah. They were whispering because they already knew that the leadership, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the uh, the high priests, they all they knew that all of those people were violently opposed to Jesus. They didn't want to hear any talk about him potentially being the Messiah. And so that was the thing that really horrified the Pharisees. They they just they felt they felt like things were really getting out of hand. And so what did they do? Well, as we can see in our passage, they went to the chief priests. By the way, the chief priests are not the high priests. Okay, there's one high priest at a time. The chief priests were the ex high. They were high priests in the past, and now they had this this status. Kind of like uh, if you're a professor at a university, and then at some point you retire and you're called emeritus. If you know, if you know fully with that, but that's what it really was. It was this 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 uh, group of people who were looked highly upon. They actually had the most power in the government, the council that governed uh, the affairs, the, the, the affairs other than the ones that the Roman Empire had. But with the, the freedom that the Roman Empire gave the nation, um, these people ruled in that respects, the religion, the practices and so forth. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests get together and they they decided they were this was their moment. They said, now it's time we should send the temple officers, the officials, to arrest Jesus. We, we can't let this go on anymore. Now, now right here at verse 32, it's really a dramatic moment if you think about it. You, have, you picture Jesus, he's, he's, he's teaching in the temple. You have this mob of people murmuring about him. This could be the Messiah. Is this the Messiah? And then, we, then the camera shifts and we see the Pharisees running over to the, the ex-high priest, the chief priest, and the, so the, the governing council, they decide now is the moment we're going to send, in modern day, police to arrest Jesus. But John leaves us hanging at this point. In other words, he's not going to immediately tell us what happened. You know, he's, so we have, we're left, as we, as we see what he presents next, wondering, how is this going to turn out? I mean, it's natural. You know, uh, wait a minute, Jesus, the, 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 the police are coming for him. What's going to happen next? The other thing was that Jesus was in the temple and they sent temple officials to arrest him. What that means is that they were really close. It probably only took them about five or ten minutes. It was a very short walk from where they were stationed to reach Jesus. And so what Jesus says next, he says in the company of those officers, this is important. Now the officers have arrived. 
And now he's speaking to them as well as to the crowd. And so let's look at what he says. Verse 33. Therefore, see that therefore tells you that based on what is said in verse 32, that there are now officers who are there to arrest him. In light of that, this is what he says. For a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me then and will not find me. See, today you sought me and here I am. Now, we saw we saw before that that uh, they were not going to be able to arrest him and put him to death now because it wasn't his time yet. His hour had not come. And so he's going to continue his ministry. But he took the opportunity here when you see the opposition and they were they really were putting into execution their plan to arrest him and have the Romans kill him right here. Six months before it would actually they would actually be successful in that. And so Jesus, as it were, could see if as the, the writing on the wall, he could see that the, things were progressing. He could see that the, the, the hostility, the anger, the viciousness was already there right in front of him. And, and he, he was able to reflect on what that meant. See, because he, he knew the future. He understood that not too long from then, he would be dying for the sins of the world. And that's why he said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. And then I go to him who sent me. And this is verse, verse 34 is really interesting. He then says, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, if you're a, a, a temple official and you're here to arrest a man and he tells you, I'm going to be here a little while longer and then I'm going to the one who sent me and then you'll you'll be seeking me and you won't find me like a hide and seek. And where I am, you cannot come. So he's kind of daring the officials to arrest him. He's saying, listen, all right, I'm going away pretty soon and then you're going to try to find me and you won't be able to. And then where I am at that point. You cannot come. Now, in reality, he's not talking about their arrest, trying to arrest him and him fleeing. He's actually, once again, as we've seen in the gospel already several times, he is speaking about heavenly things when he says, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. Well, him who sent me is God the Father. And he's talking about his return to heaven, just like he came down. He's going to go back up to be with his father. Him who sent me is God. And then he's talking about then when I've returned to my father, you will seek me. There will be a time. There will be a a reason why you're going to seek me. And by the way, it won't be to arrest him. But why? Because he will have already been arrested, put on the cross, die on the cross, be raised from the dead, ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. Then they will seek him. And it'll be too late. You will not find me anymore. And where I am in heaven with my father, you cannot come. It doesn't say anymore that you won't. It says you can't. It's morally impossible at that time for you to then come to heaven with me. So again, once again, he's speaking of heavenly things, but they can only relate the words that he says to earthly things. And so in light of that, they were really stumped about what he had to say. But what he really meant was that he will only be on earth for a short time longer. How much longer? Six months. Six months. Why do we know that? 
because of the feasts. See, in the Gospel of John, the feasts are great markers of time. He mentioned several of them. He mentioned the Passover. He'll mention this feast that was unnamed. Now he's talking about the Feast of Booths. And if you follow along in the Gospel of John, which, again, I encourage you to do, to be reading it, um, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that it will be the next Passover where, where Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He'll be rejected. The, the, the high priest will try him, find him guilty, turn him over to the Romans, who will find him innocent. But because of the pressure that was put upon them by the mob, again, by the high priest, they would, you know, Pilate gives in and has him to be crucified. Six months. Six months from now. So, And Jesus already knew this. He was already face to face, as it were, with the suffering and death that he would go through. Now, Feast of Booths is an is a autumn feast. The Feast of Passover is a spring feast. So it was from the autumn to the following spring. Then it would be time, as he says, for him to return to his heavenly father, him who sent me. But the but if you if you read what he says here, he's basically saying, I'm going to be with you and then I'm going to him who sent me. However, that pathway between them, him being with them, being on earth and going back to his father, it led through it. You couldn't he couldn't get to being back with his father because there was something in between the path to his return to his father runs through what's called the place of a skull, Golgotha, the place of a skull. It has various names. Golgotha is the Hebrew word that means the place of the skull. The word uh, Calvary is another word that's used. In any event, he's talking about his death on the cross. There he will die for the sin of the world. And that's the real uh, message that he's given. That's the real motivation from him. That's why the one who sent him sent him. He was on a mission to save the world. And so after that, then then the, the, that'll be the only issue is what do you think about this Messiah who died for your sins and was raised from the dead? The Jews here, they may not have understood everything, but one thing they should have understood was what he said in verse 33. When he said, I go to him who sent me, they really had no excuse for not knowing who he was talking about. Why? Because he was he had tell, told them several times that it was his father in heaven, God, who had sent him. But it's interesting that that doesn't will not register with them at all. He says, I will go to him who sent me. By the way, earlier that same day, he had identified the one who sent him as God. And yet they would that they just didn't want to hear that at all. Totally rejected. How do we know? Well, look at verse 34 again. Notice what he says here. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So again, verse 33, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, in, in a moment, they were seeking him again so they may arrest him and have him put to death. But later, after he goes back to be with the father, they will seek them in a, him in a very different way. There'll be a point where the Jews will be desperate and they will be seeking the Lord. And they will seeking him at that point because he believes their only hope, their only hope. And at that point, it will be too late. 
it will be too late. Look at John chapter 8, verse 21. John 8, 21 to 24 is, explains a little bit more about what Jesus said when he said, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Please go to John chapter 8, starting in verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me. And then he adds something and will die in your sin. You see, where we are now, on him being uh, in the presence of the officers, he says, for a little while longer, I'm with you. I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Here, though, he adds something. I go away. You will seek me and will die in your sin. You see, he's dying for their sins. But because they don't believe in him, as we'll see, they will die in their sin as well. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself. Once again, they totally misunderstand what he's saying. Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, here, this is the key. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Your mind is on this world, earthly things. I'm not of this world. When I talk to you, I'm talking about heavenly things. And he goes back, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you, and here's the issue, that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What he's saying is, remember, he's already said, where I am, you cannot come. You're going to seek me. You're not going to find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Why? Well, because he's in heaven. They cannot come to him in heaven. Why? Because they refuse to believe in him here on earth. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. And that's the issue. Now, for sure, um, after Jesus is ascended and, and seated at the right hand of the Father, there will be days in the future for them, the Jewish people, that will be horrible, horrifying, terrible on earth. You know, for example, in A.D. 70, the Roman armies will come and totally wipe out and destroy Jerusalem, kill thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And that's just on earth. But the ultimate issue is eternity. And, and, and that's when they really need him. But because they didn't believe in him, it will be too late. They can't come to him in heaven because they refuse to believe in him on earth. Another passage that says the same thing is John chapter three. Please turn now to John chapter three in verse 36. John chapter three, verse 36. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Look at verse 36 of John chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. They will be able to come to him. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on them on earth but also with respect to ultimate things. That's the issue. 
Okay, let's go back to John chapter 7, verse 35. <laughs> John chapter 7, verse 35. He has just told them in 33 and 34, only for a little while longer will I be with you. Then I'm going to him who sent me, God in heaven. You will at that time seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Once again, they're baffled by his words. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Look at John 7, 35. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said? You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. That statement, by the way, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. If you look up, that's verse 34, right? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. But look, but there's another thing he said before that. And that's, that's in verse 33. He said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. If they didn't understand what he said in verse 33, then verse 34 is totally baffling to them. But what did they do? They actually skipped right over 33. It didn't register. They, they, they had no interest in, in, in listening to what he had to say in verse 33. Therefore, they're going to be totally confused about what he's saying in verse 34. Again, he's saying that, please turn to chapter, did I have you go there already? Yes, you're there, right? You're there in chapter, verse 35. Okay, good. So, so he is saying, um, let me go back. See, they, they, they skip right over the words in, in verse 33, and then they're in verse 34. That's what they respond to, react to. Why? Because their, their framework is earthly. They're thinking, here we are. Um, he's saying that we're going to try to get him, and he won't. We, he'll go away. We can't find him. He's going to be somewhere where you can't come. They don't have any idea what he's talking about. They're confused. They, they, they don't see. They're trying to figure out, well, what does he what does he say? What what theory can we come up with to understand? How do we explain this? That's what that's verse 35 and 36. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks. You see, they were thinking he was going to flee and go pretty far away so that he wouldn't be arrested. So he can get away from the hostility of the leadership in Jerusalem. And the only thing they could come up with, well, he's going to go to Jews in other countries. See, that's what the dispersion is. He's going to go somewhere else. He's going to go, you know, maybe to Ephesus or maybe he's going to go to uh, Egypt. They didn't know. And they said he'll go there. And this is their theory. By the way, they didn't really they didn't really think this is what they're going to do, but they couldn't think of anything else. He's going to go to the dispersion, they think, maybe. He's going to go there, uh, the dispersion in other countries among the Greeks, and he's going to like not teach the Jews anymore because he's getting a terrible reaction with the Jews. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Verse 36, what is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And they're way off base with what that means. And again, they come up with this cockamamie theory that he's planning to leave Palestine, live with colonies of Jews who were in Gentile lands, and use them as a base of operations to preach to the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot of irony here, because they're wrong about Jesus. 
it's the wrong time for that. He has he's a ministry now and and it will be increasingly focused on Jerusalem. And he's going to go and present himself as the king, the Messiah, and they're going to reject him. It's all going to happen in Jerusalem later on, though, after he goes back to be with his father. Then the gospel is going to move into the Gentile lands. And when Paul brings the gospel to the Gentiles, he will do exactly what they were saying they thought maybe Jesus would do. He would go to the dispersion. Anytime he went to a new location, the first thing he would do would be to go to the synagogue and establish a rapport, if he could, with the Jews that were living in that place. Again, whether it was Ephesus or Philippi or Galatia, no matter where he went, that was his way of doing things to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. But Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus' ministry, his first time he came, was to the Jewish people. All right, let's keep going. John 7, 37. Let's read what happens, what he says next. By the way, John still hasn't told us what happened. Did, the, did Was he arrested that day? You know, what happened? He skips right over to another event on the following day or maybe two or three days later. John seven thirty seven. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast. By the way, that expression last day is pregnant with meaning. OK, we're going to see that the last day, the great day of the feast. Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, we're going to study today in a little while the feast that is being referred to here, the feast that he was at. And we're going to um, we're going to see that the issue of thirst is pretty prominent, actually, in the in the celebrations of the Feast of Booths. We'll see that. And so if you What's happening here, he's on the last day of the feast, and they're having ceremonies, and they're in the middle of them, and they're, and they're thinking about, we'll see this, what happened in the past when they their ancestors were in the wilderness, and they were thirsty, and then the Lord came through with providing them the, the life-giving water. So that's what they're focused on, and they're focusing on, too, the fact that the rains had come the year before in the right time so that their harvest could be rich. And then they were thinking about the following year and they were praying and hoping and expecting that the Lord would do that again. That once again, he would provide abundant rainfall so that their next harvest would also be fruitful. So water is very much on their mind. But what wasn't on their mind was that an individual among them would stand up in the middle of this last day and say what he did. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus. Now, remember, he's controversial the, the leadership don't want him around. And now he's making a big issue of himself, right? He stood up and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, in the context of their thinking about the, the focus on who it was that gave their ancestors water, it was the Lord that gave them water. He is standing and again, he is essentially saying, I am the Messiah and I am the Lord in the flesh. And now you can come to me and you can drink. Only now it won't be physical water. It will be the spiritual realities. And notice he goes right into the spiritual realities in verse 38. He who believes in me. Now, again, think of the audacity of what he's saying. 
he's not only declaring that the purpose of the feast is fulfilled in him because you can come to me now and I will give you water and you will drink. Then he says, the issue is believing in me. Now, they were supposed to be believing in the Lord that he would come through for them again with the rain and the harvest. And he's turning that around. And he's given all the attention to himself. It's now time to believe in me. So, so he was not backing off at all. He knew who he was. And we've seen this already again and again. When he was confronted, he would he would stare that issue down and again speak boldly. I am from the father. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is fulfilling the different feasts. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, again, he's talking about a spiritual reality. You got to wonder at that point what on earth they thought he was talking about. But then John explains in verse 39, by this, Jesus, when he said, from his innermost being, he who believes in me, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He explains, John does. Now, remember, Jesus wasn't explaining this that day when he was when he stood up at the last day of the feast. John is telling us, verse 39, by this he spoke of the spirit, of the spirit, of the rivers of living water. He meant the spirit. By this he spoke of the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. It would be a future thing. Why? Because the spirit was not yet given. That means at the time at which Jesus said these words. Why? Because he was not yet glorified. It would only be after the next events, Jesus dying for the sins of the world, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of the father, that he would be glorified. He'd be glorified in every step, by the way. He would be glorified in his death where he would also glorify the father. Clearly, the resurrection is a glorious event. His ascension again is supernatural. But then ultimate is when he's seated at the right hand of the father. And if you know the rest of the story, which, by the way, you will when you read the rest of the gospel of John, it's that's exactly what ended up happening. So now just to read just to go back and make sure we're clear, because it's not mentioned in our passage directly, the feast in verse 37 again, is the Feast of Booths. Now, we know that from the beginning of John chapter 7. I'd like you to turn there now. John chapter 7, verse 2. Just to refresh our memories, because it's been a while. John 7, 2. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. That's how we know what the feast was that's referred to in verse 37. The feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, you leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. So it's the feast of booths and he would eventually go. And now he's here. And that's where we where we are at John chapter seven, verse 37. So what we're going to do now is just take a little time here and in the message to, to learn or to be refreshed about what was this Feast of Booths all about? Well, the Feast of Booths was an eight-day celebration, eight days. There was a Sabbath at the beginning, and there were six days, and then another Sabbath at the end. Okay, that was the, that was the time period for this feast. Why did they have the feast? Well, it was a celebration at the time of the harvest. As a matter of fact, when the harvest was in and we, they had gathered together all the fruits of the harvest, the crops, and then they were celebrating what the Lord had given them. You see, 
the, 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 um, it was a time of thanksgiving and joy. Giving thanks to the Lord for his abundant blessings. Abundant. Now, it was the most joyous feast of the year, as you can imagine. If you think about the other feasts, Passover, okay, that's, that's a celebration with, one, with some respect. But there's also the other side of it in terms of the slaughtering of the lamb and so forth. Um, so this was the most joyous feast of all. It was a time for giving thanks to the Lord. It was the best attended feast of all of them in the year. Not only that, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned in the Bible more than any of the other feasts. So it's a central one. It's the last one. It's the most joyous. And also it was the last of three annual pilgrimage feasts in Jerusalem, which every adult male was required to attend. And and the other feasts in the spring, um, there was there was an issue there. They had to make a decision between doing what they needed to do in the spring, which was planting the harvest and, and, and coming. Well, at this point in time, the harvest is already in. So they were already in mood to celebrate. They have some more freedom. It was the best attended feast of the year. The feast went by a couple other names. So you'll see these other names at, from time to time. Feast of Tabernacles is another name. That's just another name for booth, tabernacle. But also in the book of Exodus, and we won't look at this, but the, 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 in the book of Exodus, it's called the Feast of the Ingathering, the Ingathering. So what was it all about? Well, it was really a time for reflection. It was in the fall. They had been blessed with a great harvest, and it was time for them to reflect on the blessings of God. Now, they, they, they would reflect on the blessings of God in the past, all right? Not only that, but they would also be thankful for the blessings they had now in the present, and they would be anticipating great blessings in the future. So in other words, there's a component about the past looking back. Whoops, going the wrong way. Component about the past looking back on how the Lord has blessed the people in the past. Then there's the present, how he's blessing them now, and then anticipating blessings in the future. Three elements, past, present, and future. So now we're going to go to the scriptures and see the past, the present, and the future. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was instituted originally to remind the people of Israel every year about an event in the past when the Lord provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. After the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt, then they were in the wilderness. They wandered around for 40 years in that wilderness and everything they needed, they needed to get from the Lord. So that was the, that was the original reason why the Lord gave them the feast of booths. I'd like you to turn now to Leviticus all the way back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 in verse 39 is where we'll start. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 39. Leviticus, you say the word and everybody's, you know, so I don't want to go into the book of Leviticus. You know, I got to think about all of these rules and regulations. Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But you also have wonderful parts, humanly speaking now. They're all wonderful, spiritually speaking, where the Lord institutes the feasts. And this one is the most joyous of all of them. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 39. Leviticus 23, verse 39. On exactly. I love that. Exactly. You know, the Jewish religion was an exacting religion. 
We had a certain number of days, a certain specified um, order of sacrifices, and so on. You know, and so this is no different. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day, Sabbath, and a rest on the eighth day. Again, the exact day, the fifteenth day of the seventh month, that's Tishri, by the way. Um, not important necessarily that you know that. It's an interesting study to look at the um, months in the calendar of, of the Hebrew calendar. But it was in the seventh month, 15th day, when you've get when after you've gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate this feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees. I hope you can start to get the sense of the celebration and the joy that's involved. People are going out and they're getting foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. In other words, they all went out into the countryside and they gathered in all of these things living things, foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, the boughs of leafy trees and the willows of the brook. Why? We'll see that in a moment. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It will be a perpetual statute. In other words, you'll do this every year or you're supposed to do this every year. Throughout your generations, <laughs> you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Now, why gathering all of these things, the, the foliage and the palm branches and so forth? You will live in booths for seven days. And those booths would be <coughs> would be constructed out of out of the boughs of the leafy trees and so forth. Why? You shall live in booths for seven days. Verse 42. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So this is a tremendous event. There were thousands of people doing this at the same time. You can picture it. And then at nighttime, you would see in the hills the lights that were on, you know, and you'd see them and they would all be celebrating. It was just a marvelous, marvelous feast. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. Why? So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Now, he intended this, as you can see in verse 41, to be a perpetual statute. In other words, every year. Now, what was going to happen is, is that um, soon, you know, after this was instituted, they forgot. And literally for hundreds of years, they didn't celebrate this feast. It's one of the reasons why, among many, that the Lord eventually had them taken into exile. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you got to be pretty corrupt to not even celebrate the most joyous feast of the year when you have tangibly in front of you the blessing of the Lord so that when they refuse to do that, that was a serious matter to the Lord. But now let's think about what he said. He said, you know, I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You're celebrating that. That's why you're in the booths, because when when your ancestors were in the desert, I had them in booths. Well, what did the Lord provide? For the sons of Israel back then, when he had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, 
when they were wandering in the desert. Well, that's why I'd like you to turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, is a second time through. It's to be a reminder. It's repetition. So he's telling them. See, earlier on, we saw in the book of Exodus, these events as they happen, numbers, same thing. The first time around, we see them actually occurring. Deuteronomy is a reflection, looking back. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. He led you, Moses is speaking. He, the Lord, led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you. There's that water again. Right. So fast forward to Jesus standing up and saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In the context of why the Lord gave them this feast to remember the Lord providing them everything they need when they were in the desert, specifically water. That was that clearly on their minds or should have been when they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. And now Jesus gets up and says, if you want water now, come to me. He's identifying himself as the Lord that delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt and provided them water in the wilderness. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. That's what the Lord provided for the sons of Israel in the wilderness. And every year when they celebrated the Feast of Booths, they were supposed to go and remember that that all the way back that we may know now what the Lord did for our ancestors, including providing them everything they needed, gave them bread from heaven, the food that they needed, and life-giving water when they were thirsty. I want you to file that away because next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at what happened when Jesus stood up and the significance of that. Also, I want you to we're also going to um, reflect ourselves on what had happened earlier in terms of food, in terms of bread. In chapter six, when Jesus feeds the multitudes, all of that you have to put together and understand the significance and the drama of what Jesus was really saying when he stood up on the eighth day of the feast. Well, that was the past. They looked at the past. They looked at the Lord providing their ancestors bread from heaven, life-giving water. (laughs) The Feast of Booths, though, was also a time when Israel was to give thanks to the Lord for his present provision. That year, that year's harvest. I want you to turn now to the book of Deuteronomy. Go forward just a little bit, chapter 16. Again, past, present, and importantly, future. Past, looking back on the Lord providing everything that the nation needed when they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Now we're in the present. They're also celebrating and joyful about the present provision of the Lord, the blessings that they had right when they were celebrating the feast. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor in your wine vat. Again, you have food and drink. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants 
and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. They were supposed to take care of all those people. They were supposed to share in the harvest. Whoever was with them, whether it be their servants, whether it be Levites, who, by the way, didn't have their own fields to to uh, to, you know, to to farm, and they need they were relying on the people to feed them. People from other places, strangers, orphans, widows—they had no ability to provide for themselves either. So the so the people were supposed to reflect the graciousness of the Lord with the people in their midst that needed them to be gracious as well. Verse fifteen: Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Okay, at that point of time, it would be the tabernacle. Later on, of course, it's the temple. That's the way, that's where the Lord chose to dwell. Why? Because now we saw before the purpose was so that they could what? Remember what, what the Lord had provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. Now, also, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful, the present. Celebrate the past, celebrate the present. The Lord your God is still blessing you in all the work of your hands, all the produce of the land, so that you will be altogether joyful. Joyful for the past, joyful for the present. Verse 16, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the fe- Here are the three feasts that required a pilgrimage of the males. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear, appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. When you are blessed, you should bless others in return. Now the Feast of Booths, again, was the seventh, the final feast of the year, the, the Jewish year, celebrated, as I mentioned, during the month of Tishri, now, when was that? Well, in our calendar, it's late September to mid-October. Late September to mid-October. When I was back in New England, that was exactly the time period when the foliage came out. Beautiful. If you ever, you should go someday. I get some money from the Chamber of Commerce in, in Vermont for that statement. But it, it, So it's a wonderful time of year. It's a celebration. It was in late September and mid-October. It came at the end, though, of the dry season in Israel. Again, think about the water. Think about the water provided in the desert. And then think about Jesus standing up. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He said that at the end of the dry season in Israel. What did that mean? It meant that if they didn't get rain soon, they were going to be in trouble with next year's harvest. So at the same time, they were celebrating the fact that they had a bountiful harvest. They were still realizing they were dependent on the Lord. They needed him to come through for them again with regard to water, with regard to rain. They needed him. And they and they prayed at that time during the Feast of Booths that the Lord would again provide abundant rain for the next year's crops. Past, present, and then here we see the future in, in, in an immediate future for them. And that would ensure a bountiful harvest the next year. That would ensure a bountiful harvest the next year. Now, we've seen in the book of Deuteronomy, all right, how the Lord set things up about, you know, the past, the present. Then we go forward. 
And then we go forward hundreds of years. And now we're going to go to the prophets. And you see, the prophets, by the time the prophets appear, you have, you have, uh, they've had a lot more history. They've failed a lot. They have not done what the Lord had to say. And yet we've seen this in the book of Isaiah. The Lord is, is never through with them. He never totally rejects them. And so the Feast of Booths is going to take on a new character. The Feast of Booths is also going to be a time for people to, Jewish people, to anticipate the tremendous blessings. Whoops, there we go. The tremendous blessings of what? The future. What future? The Messianic kingdom. It's the prophets that describe the blessings of the Messianic kingdom. Again, the overabundance of, of production. The fact that there wouldn't be disease, the fact that the animals would no longer be vicious, all the things that were blessings way beyond they'd ever experienced, but that the prophet said would happen. And it, and it turns out that the Feast of Booths is also mentioned by the prophets in this way. It, and so I want you to see that, see that the, they were anticipating the future when the Messiah would come and the kingdom would be established. Please turn to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Zechariah 14, verse 16. The Feast of Booths was a celebration, a joyful time. And the issue was water. Again and again in the past, it was the water that the Lord provided for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. In the present, it would be the water that he had provided for last year's harvest and that they would provide for next year's harvest. Now, let's look at what Zechariah has to say about the Feast of Booths, which he mentions as well. But again, he's mentioning it in the context of the Messiah returning. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Then it will come about, this is when Christ comes back. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, Notice what will happen. The enemies of Jerusalem, the nations, what will happen? They will they will go up, the Gentiles, from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. When the, when the kingdom is set up, not only will Israel celebrate the Feast of Booths, but all the nations that remain were also to celebrate the Feast of Booths, now to worship the king. Before, it was to bring them in into remembrance the past and the present now is to simply worship the king because he's among them and because the king is there he has the ability to to bless everybody but we're going to see something interesting even then about the manner of which the lord will in the future not even then even the future is going to handle this feast of booths with respect to the gentile nations again verse 16 then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It'll be a worldwide celebration. Verse 17, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, notice, there will be no rain on them. So the water is still prominent in the past, in the present, and in the future kingdom. The issue will still be rain. Now, no longer for the nation of Israel. They'll be blessed abundantly by the Lord 
every year for a thousand years. However, the Gentile nations, remember, they never worshipped the Lord before. They were the enemies of Jerusalem. And for them, they, they needed to come to Jerusalem every year and celebrate the Feast of Booths as a reminder that if they didn't, the Lord would remind them about the fact that the, the nation of Israel is their chosen people. You've seen how I've blessed them. I've asked you to celebrate this same feast. If you don't, then the rains won't come on your lands. Notice verse 17. It will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And he gives an example. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It's a serious, serious, wonderful celebration, but also really important to the Lord. And it always had to do with water, had to do with the water that he provided in the desert. It had to do with the rainfall that he provided for the nation of Israel each and every year for the harvest. And in the future, the issue will still be water, be rain only. Now the issue will be the rain for the Gentile nations. Next time we will complete our study on the Feast of Booths by going back to John chapter 7, going back to that moment when Jesus stood up and tying in what we've learned about the Feast of Booths into that great proclamation that the Lord gave on that last day, the great day of the feast. All right, let's close in prayer and get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for all your blessings for us, past, present, and future. We thank you for blessing us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, giving us the Lord, giving us his body to die on the cross for us. We thank you for our our present blessings. We know that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We stand in your grace raining down on us now every day. And we too look forward to the incredible blessings that you have prepared for us in the future, in, in the rapture, in being face-to-face with you, being with the Lord, and never, never, never not being with him. And then also, Father, we are thanking you for all the blessings that you will give us forever and ever in the ages to come. So now, Father, we celebrate the central event that made all this possible and bring into remembrance, as the Jews would have bring into remembrance, your, your provision for them to bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, if you would now, if you would uh, just prepare the elements so that they're available as we celebrate our version of, of a feast. And again, it has to do with bread and drink. Only now it has to do with what we look back on, uh, our memorial to the death of Christ for our sins. So this morning that John tells us that the Pharisees heard that crowd muttering things about Jesus and they had the chief priests get together with the Pharisees and they sent officers to seize him. 
And Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. That was the last feast of booths that Jesus celebrated during his time here on earth. You know, Jesus on the night before he suffered said that he greatly desired to celebrate the feast of the Passover with his disciples. And he said he wouldn't drink from the fruit of the vine, the wine, until he comes back in his kingdom. But when he was in the temple in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths, think about it. He already knew that his time was short. You know, he had no uncertainty about when he would die, how he would die, or why he would die. And if you think about it, it's really, humanly speaking, a tremendous burden to know all of that in advance, to know for a fact that as you continue to be bold in telling the Jews who you are, that there would be there would be greater and greater resistance and it would culminate in them finally taking you, arresting you, have, have you beaten and put on a cross and go forward with it anyway. Go forward with it anyway. That's amazing. That's amazing to me on a human level. He knew just six months from then, And he knew that he would then go back to the one who had originally sent him on this mission to save the world. The greatest mission ever to save the world. And uh, in John chapter 13, verse one, that's the night before he goes to the cross. He's with his disciples and he says, and, and, and John says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. The hour that he said hadn't come before now has come. What? Why? That he would depart out of this world to the Father. And he loved his own who were in the world to the end. Again, Jesus realized his death was soon approaching. He also knew that the way back to his Father passed through unimaginable suffering. And yet, it would be the means by which he would glorify his Father and in turn be glorified by the Father. He knew, though, that the path he was walking would soon end with him dying on the cross. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, just like the Jewish people remembered the gracious provision of the Lord for them in their desert experience, we have a, we had, as, as the human race, our own desert experience, our own lack we were literally dead spiritually and we were headed for the lake of fire. We were under the wrath of God. And yet the Lord comes through and gives us the father, gives us his son in order that we may be delivered and be amply provided for. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we bring to mind that gift, the new thing that the Lord brought, which would which would which would fulfill the law and which would bring on a whole new time of spiritual blessing for us who believe in in Jesus. But we so we proclaim his death now and we proclaim the fact that he bore our sins on the cross in his body. We know that while he was perfect, he was offered as the sin offering for us, for the for the purpose that we might become righteous before his father. So today, once again, we take the bread that is broken for us and remember his broken body. And we take the cup and remember his blood was poured out for many.
for the forgiveness of sins. In this food, the bread, in this drink, the cup, we again today proclaim what his death is all about and what is accomplished. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we also look back at the past when Jesus died for us, his body, his blood. We look at the present that we've been saved and we have this tremendous opportunity to proclaim his death. And we too look to the future when he returns and we have great blessing when we have with him face to face. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you once again for your great provision. You will provide. You have provided. You provided for you, for the Jewish people. You've provided for whosoever will believe in your son. You gave your son for the whole world. And whoever believes in him gets the greatest provision of all, eternal life. So, Father, we just want to thank you again for this opportunity today to celebrate and proclaim the death of your son. And we would ask that we, too, would remember the significance of what we do every time we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we will have Bible study this Thursday, and it will be both in person and on Skype. We're always on Skype, but now um, back to being in person again. Thank the Lord for that. Once, just remember, too, that especially when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that on our minds should should be his death for the sins of the world and also the fact that there are so many in this lost and dying world who need him. It's just like what he said to the Jews. He said, listen, you will seek me and you won't find me at a certain point. Well, every human being that hasn't believed in Christ is in that exact same position. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who don't, the wrath of God remains on them. That, I hope that brings into focus, clarifies what, how important it is that people hear the gospel. And what is the gospel? That everyone dies, was dead in their trespasses and sins. We're all born sinners. Every human being has fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God made provision. He gave his son, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And his son, Jesus Christ, went to the cross, as we've seen this morning, and he died for the sins of the world, including you. If you have never believed in Christ, please know that he died for you. This Jesus, God's son, died for you. And he was buried, and then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And whoever simply believes in him, your Savior, died for you on the cross, raised from the dead, 
raised from the dead, God's saying in his resurrection that whoever believes in my son, I will declare righteous forever. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, again, we want to thank you for your provisions. We thank you, Father, for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you, Father, that that uh, it's, it's simple to hear good news and believe it. And so you have you have just blown away any obstacle to someone believing in your son and any obstacle other than their own unbelief or anybody to be in heaven with you forever and have eternal life. So we just want to thank you and praise you for your grace, especially in that. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we offer this prayer. Amen.